I want to invite you to imagine a scene out of the greatest party that you have ever attended. Or perhaps I'd go one step further and suggest that you try to imagine a scene out of an even more amazing kind of party than perhaps you've ever attended. I see a vast ballroom teeming with revelers who spill out of the space and into beautifully lit courtyards around its edges. The air is filled with the strains of music as a marvelous orchestra accompanies a steady parade of, of dancers and singers. And you see the candlelight glinting off of uh, the bangles and bracelets and uh, marvelous jewelry of, uh, of so many people who sit at hundreds of long tables that fill this ballroom. Servants are moving in the aisleways of this place, uh, carrying these heavy trays laden with mounds of steaming food, careful not to spill any of the rich sauces on the embroidered uh, clothing and, and beautiful robes of the guests there or to uh, mess with the, the beautifully dyed rugs that filled that space. And as people are swapping the latest jokes and the gossip about who was seen with who and who did what, gusts of laughter rise above the roar of a hundred conversations as the clink of silver on magnificent porcelain is heard in the room. It could have been the uh, Ritz-Carlton on New Year's Eve or maybe the uh, Oscar post-Oscar party in Hollywood. It could have been any of those things, except it was the palace of King Belshazzar of Babylon, and the year was 539 BC. It had been 23 years since the death of the famous king Nebuchadnezzar, this extraordinary leader who had guided the fortunes of Babylon for more than 40 years. And the passing of the brilliant monarch had led to a series of short-lived administrations, ones that were punctuated with assassinations and coups, scandals and struggles of various kinds. At long last, a particularly bloody coup had placed a general by the name of Nabonidus on the throne. And Nabonidus had managed to hold on to power for some 17 years. Truthfully, however, Nabonidus' interest was not really in ruling Babylon per se. He was far more interested in shoring up the trade alliances the kingdom had with Arabia or overseeing the excavation of the antiquities found in Sumeria than boring himself with the drone of domestic affairs. That kind of operation, Nabonidus left to his son and co-regent, a man by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar had neither the intellect nor the moral fiber equal to the task of holding together what was by this point a severely decaying kind of culture. That sense of noblesse oblige, that sense of obligation to use one's unusual resources and capacities in the service of ends greater than oneself had all but left that civilization by this time. The poor of the inner city grew more and more desperate. The sheltered wealthy grew more and more uh, distanced from the concerns of normal people. They became more and more convinced that they deserved an ever-ascending parade of decadent pleasures constantly being manufactured in that very wealthy society. 
immense sexual license was tolerated uh, at, at an extreme level, more than tolerated, it was actually glorified. Trial marriages uh, where any one of the parties was free to dissolve the terms of the covenant uh, at a moment's notice had actually become the norm. And taboo-breaking acts and temple prostitution was so accepted in this time that even the liberal Greeks referred to Babylon as a sink of iniquity. The Greeks were pretty progressive. Babylon was a whole different category. Religion provided no restraining influence on this downward slide. One census of the time listed some 65,000 designer deities of this time. Everybody had their own uh, 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 divinity that was uh, beautifully shaped to support and advance whatever they actually personally chose to do. In the words of historian Will Durant, in the midst of this spiritual swamp, the army fell into disorder, businessmen forgot the love of country and the sublime internationalism of finance, the people, busy with trade and pleasure, unlearned the arts of war, the priests usurped more and more of the royal power and fattened their treasuries with wealth that tempted invasion and conquest. As the moral hollowness at the center of Babylon grew, all that was left in time were the formidable walls of this civilization. The Chaldeans, as the Babylonians referred, put a great deal of faith in their walls. The ancient historian Herodotus tells us that the city of Babylon was surrounded by these massive double walls. Each one of those walls some 25 feet in width, 200 to 300 feet high in places, and the walls, the two walls separated by a moat. Along the top of the outer wall ran a broad highway by which the uh, generals of Babylon could move troops at a moment's notice to defend any part of the 56-mile perimeter of the city's defenses. And in time of enemy siege, the surrounding population would flee inside of the city. They could enter by any one of some 100 fortified gates, which would be closed behind them, and they would be safe inside of that city. Within the precincts of the, of the city of Babylon, the capital city, were farmlands so rich they could support the life of, of the entire nation for a very long period of time, while any uh, uh, erstwhile invaders sat outside the walls, helpless to, to do anything to really touch the people inside. And because the, the Euphrates River actually ran underneath one of these gates, the, the populace were assured a virtually limitless supply of fresh water. It was thus in the year 539 when a Persian general by the name of Darius laid siege to the ancient city that its citizenry did not exactly panic. They were not worried at all. On the contrary, we're told in another historical source that the Babylonians actually went up to the top of their walls and jeered at the invaders outside. They were said to have remarked, till mules foal, you won't take our city. That's the uh, ancient equivalent of till pigs fly. You'll never take this city. 
And it was with the same absolute confidence in their impregnable lifestyle that the elite of Babylon gathered behind the walls of the city in the king's palace for the party that I described to you earlier. So let's pick up the story, if we can, in chapter 5 and at verse 1, where the text reads as follows. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Picture the incredible gathering as they celebrated their power and preeminence. Apparently, there came a moment in the feast, as there happens sometimes at large gatherings, when the energy began to dissipate, uh, when people began to grow uh, bored. And it was then that the Bible says that Belshazzar, while drinking his wine, the text underlines again, hits upon a colorful idea. Now, we don't know why exactly there's an emphasis on the fact that he was drinking his wine. Maybe, maybe Belshazzar was fighting a little bit of edginess over the fact that there were outside his city's walls all of these invaders, uh, the Persian armies. Uh, maybe he had been reminiscing about the good old days, and after a few cocktails, he'd grown a little bit saccharine and, and sentimental. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that Belshazzar remembered that in one of his storerooms were some very interesting relics. Some relics that were sure to amuse and to enliven his guests, maybe pick up the energy of the party or distract people from the tension that maybe some people were feeling about the Persians and would certainly serve to remind everybody in the room just how big, bad, and bold Babylon truly was. We're told in verse 2 that Belshazzar gave orders for his servants to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, actually his grandfather here, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And then we're told specifically why he wanted these things brought in. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, to understand really what's going on here, you need to know what these goblets he had ordered up actually were. Centuries before, King Solomon of Israel had built a massive temple, a storied temple, upon the Mount of Jerusalem. And as a show of utter respect for God's incalculable worth and glory, Solomon had equipped the temple with a magnificent collection of bowls and goblets that were to be used by the priests only for the highest form of worship ritual. The bowls were employed in rites of purification before the holiness of God. The Israelites understood that God was perfectly holy. And as a way of reminding themselves that they were not, that they depended upon his grace for the cleansing of their sin. They would wash in these bowls before coming to worship. The goblets were used at the time of the Passover. They were used to hold the wine that commemorated the blood of the innocent lambs who had been sacrificed in atonement for Israel's sin and to allow the release of God's people from slavery in Egypt. I hope you're getting this. I hope you're taking this in, how significant these vessels were. 
They were the ancient Hebrew equivalent to the actual bowl that Jesus used when he stooped down on the night in which he was betrayed and washed the feet of his disciples. They were the equivalent to the actual cup that Jesus raised, proclaiming the new covenant shed in his blood for the forgiveness of many. These were the the nature of these vessels which Nebuchadnezzar ordered dragged up from the basement, these vessels that had been stolen from their proper place and now were to be used for for Belshazzar's particular pleasure. These vessels that a bunch of grimy-fingered Babylonian soldiers had stolen from the great temple as they sacked it and destroyed it, these holy objects which were created for the sole purpose of glorifying the awesome God of the universe, Belshazzar was now going to be used using to stroke his own ego and that of his empire. It was these vessels which were set aside for the humble and heartfelt worship of the Most High God alone, the one who had said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor shall you make any uh, worship any graven image. It was ironically all of these particular vessels from which Belshazzar and his guests, as verse 4 goes on to report, drank the wine while they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The irony and blasphemy of this act defies description. I am surprised personally that there is not a blast crater the size of Iowa where Babylon used to be. It would not have been surprising if the next thing that happened in this moment was something right out of the Indiana Jones movies, where the guy who selfishly trifles with the Ark of the Covenant or with the Holy Grail suddenly gets vaporized and melts before your eyes. That would have been an appropriate response of God to what was going on here. But then, isn't it a good thing that God does not immediately vaporize, penalize, condemn those who misuse misuse the sacred vessels that he's given us for his glory. I'm thinking of those particular kinds of sacred vessels that have fallen into your hands and into my hands. God's word tells us something about how these vessels that we hold are meant to be handled. The vessel of full sexual expression, for instance, is not meant, as popularly understood today, to be used for casual social connection or momentary pleasure. The vessel of full sexual expression is meant to be a means of honoring, bonding to, and discovering joy in someone to whom we will commit the entirety of our lives. The vessel of speech which we hold and use so often, isn't given to us to make us look good or to put others in their place. It is meant, the vessel of speech is meant to praise God and to edify, which means to build up the people around us. The vessel of earthly treasure is not intended to be used to lavish luxury upon luxury uh, upon ourselves 
It is meant to provide a sufficient lifestyle for ourselves and our families, and then to generously meet the needs of others not so blessed. I cannot speak for you, but I will confess that I lose sight of this stuff sometimes. I lose sight of what I'm doing, of what I'm meant to be doing with the sacred vessels. I have to be reminded sometimes that the vessel of parenthood is not primarily meant to provide me with jollies from seeing my kid go off to a great school or excel in sports. It's meant to be used to help children know the joy and the purpose of living after the character of God. That's the number one purpose of that vessel, is to train them up in the Lord's way. I get to thinking sometimes that the purpose of the vessel of my job is to make a name for myself or build my own little empire, but it's not. Our jobs are meant to be used as instruments for advancing uh, the common graces and the amazing grace of God, the kingdom values so needed in our world today. This is what our jobs are for, uh, as well as to supply the needs of our families. Even the vessel of the arts today is being so casually and blasphemously used, blasphemously used sometimes, because the vessel of the arts is not meant for personal expression, for, for, for it's all about me or for, or for entertainment alone. No, originally it was understood that ba- painting and singing and playing and dancing and filmmaking and writing were ultimately to be vessels that were used to help purify people's spirits for relationship with a holy God or else to serve to bring the grace and the truth and the beauty of God to thirsty people. The question I want to pose today, a question that is seldom asked in America any longer, is how have you and I been using the vessels given to us for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom alone. How are we doing with these things? What are we doing with these things? There's something I learned from reading the story of Belshazzar and many like his that pulled me up short this week in a deep personal way. And that is when a person is not honoring God in the use of such sacred vessels, it is crazy to think that a mere wall will stop the hand of God from reaching in and bringing about the change that he seeks. The Babylonians were unclear on that concept, obviously. They reasoned that if they just built big enough temples, palaces, fortifications, they were in control of destiny. They could safely do just about anything they chose with the vessels of their lives or the vessels of other people's lives. And the truth is, I think a lot of people in America feel that way today. I think we are so comforted by our affluence, by our armies, by our standing in the world, by our historic story that we think to ourselves that ultimately we are the ones who master and control destiny. But we are not. There is a God of the nations. There is a God before whom the nations rise and fall, the scriptures say. And the truth is that wealth is not high enough, fame isn't thick enough, health is not long enough, human securities aren't strong enough to hide from God if he decides that his will is not being done. 
Some years ago, there was a congregation of Christians uh, in uh, Alabama, the city of Montgomery, uh, who attended a church called the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. They had called to their pulpit an extraordinarily articulate gentleman by the name of Dr. Vernon Johns, who ministered there for more than a decade, uh, eloquently, wisely, and then uh, after that period of time, uh, Dr. Vernon Johns began to turn in his preaching a bit and to get much more pointed. Uh, Dr. Johns began to talk with the congregation uh, about how God might want to use them more fully. This was an unusually affluent congregation, and he challenged them to think about the role they could play in the world with what they had been given, and specifically called them to be part of challenging the racism of that time. He saw that racism dividing the society, and he believed that that particular church could be enormously influential in helping to spark a different kind of future, a different sort of conversation. Wow, you should have seen the walls go up at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church over that. I mean, this pastor had been beloved one minute. He became vilified the next minute. It was the kind of reaction, I suppose, that Nebuchadnezzar must have gotten when he suddenly found religion, Jesus, uh, or the Jewish religion, towards the end of his life. I can't uh, think but that many in his court were very concerned that he'd lost his mind. He'd gone a very dangerous direction. And so the truth was that at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a lot of the influential members of the old guard got, guard got very upset and they began to successfully uh, mount a movement to oust Dr. Johns from the pulpit, which they succeeded in doing, and began a search for a more traditional pastor. After a search, at long last, they found a new pastor, and with great relief, they welcomed him inside the walls of their stony church, this new minister. He was a thankfully very serene, polite, promising young fellow by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr. We cannot build a wall high enough to stop God from finding us when he believes that his will is not being done. God will find a way to get his will done. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Asked the psalmist. Or where can I flee from your presence? For if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall find me, even there your hand shall lead me. And so the scriptures record in verse 5 of Daniel 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, i.e. where everybody could see it, where the light was on. The fingers of a hand wrote... And the king watched the hand as it wrote, the text says, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. And in the interest of time, I'm going to stop the story right there. And I'm going to unpack the actual message that Belshazzar saw when we return next week. But let me just close with a question. 
for each of us to ponder in the meantime. Just suppose God were to penetrate our walls. Just suppose that that God were to come behind those obstacles that you and I, I'm in this with you, erect against giving God total lordship over our lives. Imagine for an instant he could get past those tall rationalizations, those thick habits, and the long history that we have built up doing things a certain way, which means our way. Suppose God could get behind that. Suppose he could materialize on the vulnerable side of our fears and our secret securities as once upon a time he appeared behind the locked doors of a room and found a group of disciples and reached out his nail-pierced hand and summoned them to new life, to a new kind of life and mission. Suppose God still can do these things. The question I have for you is if the hand of God were to write a personal message on the wall of your life right now, what words would appear next to the lampstand? What would be God's graffiti to you? What sacred vessel might he be challenging you or me to stop using in the way we've been using it and restore to its proper use What wall of bitterness or prejudice or apathy that divides you or me from other people would God ask us to start taking down? What fortified gate in our soul would God ask us to throw open that he might come in and establish his kingdom in the midst of our decaying empire? Ask the Holy Spirit to interpret God's message to you. He will open up your understanding. He will give you the power to make sense of the words. Talk to a wise man or woman if you need some help. And then for God's sake and for your sake, for our sake, do something about what God is telling us. Do something. There's one thought that I cannot get out of my mind and with which I want to end. Belshazzar honestly thought he had all the time in the world to respond to the writing on that wall. Because God had been so patient in the past. Belshazzar thought, there's no hurry. But as chapter 5 concludes, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Would you please pray with me? God, it is a scary thought to consider the possibility that we may be living right now amidst the sort of party that Belshazzar threw on that night long ago. There may be moments when we tire of the pace or of the people, but we are part of this world nonetheless. We know that if this Babylonian culture in which we live today is ever to change, some of us who sit in positions of influence have got to do some changing first. Thank you that you do choose to come behind the walls that we build. Help us to open our eyes to what you are writing for each of us to read right now. 
if you are calling us to repent, to restore to their proper use some sacred vessel, show us what it is, and Lord, we will respond before the opportunity is past. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.